Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, the coronavirus has been hitting the U.S. fairly hard uh, in quite unexpected ways um, when China was getting hit hard. Uh, back in the spring f- festival earlier this year, people weren't really paying attention to it. But now the whole country is in lockdown and the uh, Fed and the Treasury have just released unprecedented economic response policies. Uh, so here today, joining me remotely from Princeton is Professor Marcus Brunemeyer. He and I will be talking about uh, the, the Fed and uh, and uh, the Treasury's uh, recent economic response policies, as well as uh, the risk and economic lo- outlook uh, going forward because of the coronavirus. Uh, Professor Brunemeyer uh, is the Edwards S. Sanford Professor of Economics at Princeton University and uh, the director of the Benham Center for Finance. And his research has been focusing on international financial markets, the macroeconomy, uh, liquidity, crises, liquidity spirals, um, financial crises, and macroeconomic policy. So uh, he's a true expert on some of those topics, and he has done a series of webinars uh, uh, on, the, on the recent economic measures. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me remotely, Professor Bruno Meyer. Thank you, Tiger. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I think uh, I mean, you've done uh, three webinars in the past uh, week or two, uh, each with uh, a diff- focusing on a different aspect of things, you know, from uh, focusing on the economic outlook with uh, Deutsche Bank's chief economist, Torsten Slock, uh, to the sort of the policy responses and then to the epidemiological sort of modeling of the uh, outbreak trend. Uh, so, so why don't we just start by quickly going through some of the main takeaways uh, that you know you think the listeners should really care about uh, after d- doing those webinars? Essentially, what you see that there are three crises coming together. One is essentially um, a health crisis. Then we have an economic crisis for the real economy, and at the same time, we also have a financial crisis. And what I tried to do is to bring some expert economists and from other fields together to shed a light on all of these three aspects and in particular on the interactions of all of these three crises. And uh, I, I think uh, the your first webinar with uh, Torsten Slock, Deutsche Bank's chief economist, um, and, and in that webinar, uh, you kind of explain the nature of economic shocks. You know, the, you mentioned that there are temporary ones and permanent ones. And, you know, there's a V-shaped, U-shaped, L-shaped, uh, you know, some very technical terms. Uh, so would, would you mind giving our listeners a very brief overview of some of those more technical aspects of, of economic shocks and what kind of shock we're experiencing for this crisis? So what we having you the big debate about how long will the recession last so if it's a v-shaped it means just it just drops for a month or two or even a quarter and then comes back a u-shaped lasts a little bit longer and then it comes back but if it's an l-shape it means it's a permanent shock so it's like an l like the letter l and we're still debating which way it will be so that's where the huge uncertainty is on this particular recession how long will it last and this also will d- depend, you know, do we find a vaccination? People talk about 18 months until we have some vaccination. That's a very long period. We can't do a lockdown for so long. So the key will be to do testing, testing, and testing, and then find people who are immune to the virus, and then they can go back to work and run the economy. So that's one distinction is how 
long-lasting is the shock. Is it a temporary shock or is it really a permanent shock? The other dimension is what we often do is distinguish between supply shocks and demand shocks. And typically when you think of the Great Depression, you think of a demand shock. And because of this demand shock, the prices go down, we go in deflation period. If you think about the 1970s, you think of a supply shock. The oil shock actually made supply much more expensive. So you have to import the oil, became much more expensive. And that led to huge inflation. So we won't like to know, does this lead to inflation or deflation? And there's a lot of uncertainty about this as well. So while the initial shock this time was really a supply shock, so because here labor supply, if you want to work and you can't work, so there's a shock to supply labor, so workers cannot supply their labor to the economy. So it is indeed a supply shock, but it also translates to the demand shock as well. So if you want to go to a restaurant, you cannot demand food from a restaurant because of the health considerations you have. So we have a complicated mix between supply and demand shock. And we still you know, have to figure out which one is the more important one uh, in this dimension. We might even argue that it's actually not so useful to make the distinction for this particular crisis we are facing. But of course, we are very interested what are the implications in the long run for inflation versus deflation. And there's a lot of uncertainty on this dimension as well. Well, I think some economists are saying that it's a purely exogenous shock in the sense that uh, it's the, the system within, it's still fairly healthy, but it's just that literally the government has forced the economy to come to a stall and freeze all economic activities. So uh, do you think in that sense, it's, it, it will be uh, the recovery will be fairly smooth whenever we unfreeze the economy or will it actually kind of lead to some dramatic internal consequences for this financial system uh, if this uh, freezing continues? So I think the last half sentence is really the important one. If it's a really a V-shop, which is a very short, long, a short lasting and not long lasting, then I think the problems are contained and it's not such a problematic uh, phenomenon. On the other hand, if it lasts for a long time, then you know businesses will close down and you have a dramatic reduction, in, in particular in small or medium enterprises, and that will take time to rebuild, and this will be a permanent damage then. So this is really crucial to figure out some ways to reopen the economy fairly soon through better testing and uh, perhaps some other uh, medicine to really get the economy going again. Uh, so in your second webinar uh, with Nelly Liang, who is the former director of the Federal Reserve's Division of Financial Stability, uh, you kind of explain this mechanism, how, you know, financial markets can generally smooth out, uh, you know, those initial small shocks on their own. But uh, just as you rightly mentioned a couple minutes ago, if the shocks continue and are fairly large, uh, they will become destabilizing and because they freeze the liquidity. And, and uh, so I think the liquidity part is a very important part of the, 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 the debate here. Uh, do you foresee any immediate issue with the liquidity of the financial system right now? Or do you think uh, it will really have to go for another couple of months in order to, to really see the effect coming? Yeah, you really point to the important question. In a sense, if you have a liquidity problem, you can, as a policymaker, in intervene very aggressively and solve the liquidity problem. If you don't, a liquidity problem might morph into a solvency problem, which is a much more long-lasting damage to the economy. That's why I think uh, the Fed is so aggressive in intervening what we are seeing at, at the moment. So that's indeed the case. 
but of course liquidity problems if it's a long lasting thing you don't want to use all your ammunition right away so if there's a long lasting shock and we intervene now with two trillions of help and the fed is intervening with seven trillions as well then actually you might use all your ammunition right away and if it's a very long lasting that's a little bit dangerous you should you should keep some dry powder in the back uh, just in case if the recession will be long lasting well, the the Fed this time basically used all its uh, ammunition sort of in, in a weekend or a week. I mean, a lot of people are saying that basically what the Fed used uh, for an entire period of the 2000 financial crisis, they, they basically dumped it all in one weekend. So uh, in, in your opinion, do you think the Fed has used too much and not saved enough drive power for, for later? I think the Fed did the right approach for now. Uh, the important thing is to distinguish between the 2008-9 crisis and the current crisis. In 2008-2009, there was some imbalance in the economy. So we had a run-up of the housing bubble, and the housing bubble was bursting. That triggered then the whole financial sector into difficulties. So there was some misbehavior on behalf of the financial sector. This time around, the economy was in pretty healthy shape, besides of the fiscal situation, so because of the tax corporate tax cut, uh, the fiscal situation was not sustainable. But otherwise, the economy was doing well, unemployment was at record low, and everything was fine. It just was hit from outside by an exogenous shock. So that's very, very different. The other big difference is that last time it was primarily the households which had bought houses and took on mortgages. They were in difficulties. While this time around, the corporate sector is very much involved. So the corporate sector, including small and medium enterprises, your mom and pop shop around the corner, your restaurant owner, all of them, they will be hit big time as well. And that, that's a big difference because it's very hard to get to small and medium enterprises. So the Fed was just undusting all the programs that did in the last crisis and just reintroduced them again. So everything which was done last time and worked well is already working at the moment as well. But they didn't do last time anything on the corporate side. So they didn't buy any corporate bonds or, you know, were very engaged in the corporate sector. And there's some critique, you might say, that it's very hard for the Fed to reach small and medium enterprises. Because when you want to reach the small and medium enterprises, you have to go through banks. The Fed doesn't have all these um, instruments to really rechannel liquidity to these SMEs or small and medium enterprises. Just to give you an example, if a big company um, wants to issue some funds and issue some bonds, they can issue commercial paper, which is like short-term debt, and uh, they issue short-term debt, which then the Fed can buy. Or they can issue long-term corporate bonds, which the Fed can buy. And the Fed has now set up some special purpose vehicles to be able to buy corporate bonds. And that helps immediately the big companies. But... Small companies, they don't have this ability to issue corporate bonds. And hence, one has to find a different approaches to reach the small and medium enterprise. And that's a huge challenge we are still sorting out. So it still has to be sorted out. Uh, and that's, you know, one big difference to the last crisis that you have to also cover there. Uh, the corporate sector in particular, the difficulties lies with the medium and small enterprises. Uh, and I think that's also... a uh 
key issue that you addressed uh, in the second webinar with uh, Nelly Liang, which you, you mentioned how, you know, the Fed in its sort of legal authority was only supposed to buy up treasury treasuries. It's not really supposed to directly engage in sort of a corporate bond buying activity. So that's why you mentioned how the the, the, the Fed has to set up those special purpose vehicles, SPVs, uh, to do repo transactions or to do more lending. To, uh, but, but, but the issue is that that can only get to the larger corporations and then the smaller and medium-sized enterprises, the SMEs, are kind of uh, left behind. Uh, and, and you actually wrote a very interesting proposal, the evergreening proposal, uh, and and some of the do's and don'ts um, that that we should keep in mind. Would you would you mind just telling us a little bit about uh, your proposal for funding the small medium sized enterprises? Yes, yeah. So indeed, I think uh, Nelly Lang's uh, presentation was very very insightful because she went through all the programs. And as you pointed out, the Fed itself should not take on any default risk. And you know, once you buy corporate bonds, even though they are highly rated like investment grade bonds, there might be some default risk. And that's why you set up the special purpose vehicles where the taxpayer essentially had to assume that the risk of a default and the non-risky part is then, which is the liquidity part, is then funded by the, by the Fed. With regard to uh, my proposal on the evergreening, typically regulators, you know, bank regulators, they're very concerned that banks, instead of writing off loans, they're just evergreen alone. What does evergreening mean? It means essentially I have as a bank lended to somebody who can't pay back the loan. And then I have to declare to the bank supervisors who check me all the time that, oh, this loan is going sour and is going delinquent and is not paying back. And that's actually bad for me because then the bank supervisors from the Fed will say, oh, you gave a bad loan. You have to write it down. You have to have more equity cushion in your bank and all this, and you don't like that. So what you do instead, you evergreen and say, okay, I give you a new loan in order to pay off the old loan. And typically the bank supervisors look out for this. If there's some evergreening going on, then the bank is shady and is doing the wrong thing. And you want to avoid this evergreening because what you really want is that banks lend to new firms who create new jobs and unproductive firms should actually be closed down, should go bankrupt. Now, in this circumstances now, you have to reverse exactly the prescription you give in normal times. Now you want evergreening because now if you don't do anything, all the firms will go down. So you would like to uh, do that the banks, you induce them to do evergreening to really extend the loan. So if a loan comes due, ideally the bank should say, I'll give you a new loan to pay off the old loan. And we want to incentivize banks to do so. And in this proposal with Arvind Krishnamurti from Stanford, we essentially argued that the central bank should allow the banks or should give the banks a carrot to do so. And how does the carrot look like? If the bank ever cleans a loan, so it says, okay, I give you the, the small firm a new loan in order to pay off the old loan, then the loan itself, the bank can refinance at the Fed at the negative interest rate. There's such a thing like a discount window. So the the bank then has some loan as a claim towards the small firm, and then it can actually take this loan, bring it to the Federal Reserve, and it gets refinancing from the Federal Reserve. So essentially, the bank carries the default risk because it decides which loan to give and which one not to give, but it can refinance it at a very low interest rate, potentially even negative interest rate, and that makes it attractive for the bank 
to actually roll over this loan or in other words to evergreen so in a sense we have to keep the businesses going uh thus evergreening i mean help them pay down debt obligations help them keep pay, paying their employees and and such and i think that is also part of the prescription that you had uh, for Europe, uh, which is another proposal you wrote, and you talked about how important it is uh, for the government to step in uh, to to basically help provide that liquidity to the to the companies. Yeah, so essentially, in Europe, situation is more complicated because you don't have like if, what we talked about the special purpose vehicle, the SPVs, where the U.S. Treasury, so the Finance Ministry in the United States, takes on potential default risk. So. And that's you don't have in Europe because there is no European-wide finance ministry or, or treasury can take on this default risk. So you have to come up with other elements in order to protect the central bank from default risks. Like in the US, it's done through the special purpose vehicle where then the US treasury takes on the default risk. In Europe, you have to really make sure that any lending you do is actually not defaulting. So what we proposed here with Ricardo Ries from the London School of Economics and uh, Marco Pagano from Napoli in Italy, um, we proposed we give loans which are very, very secure. And why they're very, very secure is because the, when you pay back these loans, they're interest-free loans. Over the next 10 years, you pay them back, but you're paid back as an add-on to your taxes. And if it's an add-on to your taxes, Taxes, if there is ever a bankruptcy, gets priority to be paid back. So you uh, higher ranked your senior to all other debt obligations. So you're paid back first. So that part is then very, very, very risk-free or is not uh, with a lot of risk associated with. And then this should be, then this lending, this initial lending, which uh, should be done through the European Investment Bank, which is like taking on this SPV structure, we have in proposed for we have in, in the US that's would be the European Investment Bank. And the European Investment Bank is then issuing bonds, clearly risk-free bonds, to the central bank. But you see again, in order to monetary policy, you don't want to take on it the default risk. You have the default risk, you have to package away. Somebody else has to take on the default risk. For Europe, we said what's very important is that the European Investment Bank is doing that. And on top of it, we make the initial bonds fairly risk-free or the initial lending fairly risk-free uh, in order to get a bigger volume going because Europe doesn't have this capacity to issue two trillion uh, new debt because many of these countries have reached their fiscal capacity how much debt they can issue and you have to come up with more creative solutions in order to overcome the hardship which is associated with the current crisis. Uh, and I think when it comes to Europe, another concept that uh, came to, uh, to, to my mind is the problem of the zero lower bound, right? Which, which is basically you, your interest rate is so low, as, as, almost as zero or negative, that you cannot further lower the interest rate as a traditional conventional monetary policy measure. And I think that is kind of true for the U.S. and EU uh, as well. And that also goes back to the concept you mentioned, how uh, there's very little dry powder when it comes to, uh, you know, mm -hmm. fighting this kind of liquidity crisis or the financial crisis. So they have to use more unconventional policies. So if, in, in the context of this coronavirus crisis, do you, do you see 
uh, both the zero lower bound issue and also the fact that uh, Europe not having a sort of a union-wide fiscal authority posing very significant challenges uh, to, to the actual rescue. Uh, does it mean that the EU will inherently have a less effective measure than the U.S.? Yeah, so it's much more challenging. So if you just look at the, the numbers, so the U.S. is issuing two trillion of uh, initiatives from the Hill or the Capitol Hill, essentially. Um, that's a significant amount, a huge amount. If you look at uh, what Germany is doing, Germany is doing about 4% of GDP, but Italy can only do 1% of GDP to help out its industries. So there is a much more limited intervention and that will hurt the industries in the long run. And uh, But there's essentially not much fiscal space they have because they have taken on so much debt beforehand. And um, that makes it more challenging. You have to come up with more creative solutions in Europe in order to help out. The US has this big advantage that the US dollar is a safe haven currency. So whenever the crisis becomes more severe, Everybody wants to hold U.S. treasuries and U.S. dollars. That means for the U.S. Treasury Secretary to go into debt is actually getting cheaper because the interest rate is lower. So he has to pay only a lower interest rate. So in times of crisis, he can actually go into debt at a very cheap rate. And that helps the U.S. to support its own industries and to support its own small and medium enterprises if they want to. And also... Uh, support workers, you know, to make sure that they get some compensation if they're laid off and other things, which other countries cannot really do to the same extent. On the other hand, I must say, uh, from a social net uh, perspective, where, you know, how much uh, social net you have to protect the workers, Europe, of course, has much more, uh, you know, unemployment insurance schemes, has much more, uh, a, more a safety net, which is much more, uh, extensive than the U.S. has. So, and that makes it on the one hand more expensive for the government, but it also is automatically stabilizing. You have these systems in place which can pay out, which you don't have in the U.S. so much. Though so there will be much more hardship for the poor people in the United States because you don't have the social safety net you have in Europe. And that's a complication you have in the U.S. But from a government ability to pay out and help out, it's more uh, the ability to pay, uh, to help out is much more the case in the U.S. because the U.S. can go into debt at a much lower interest rate than, let's say, Italy can. Uh, before we go into a little bit, uh, sort of the general questions on you know social safety nets and comparing the U.S. and EU, I also just want to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on. Uh, the recent uh, U.S. stimulus package, the you know the two point two trillion dollar one that got passed, and combined with some of the previous packages uh, passed before, uh, right now I think the U.S. is already uh, on on the fiscal side un- unleashing around two point eight trillion, which is I think thirteen percent of the GDP or something, uh, and and. Uh, much of them is actually going to small, small and medium-sized enterprises. I think among the 2.2 trillion, around 350 billion will be directed uh, to make loans to SMEs uh, that meet certain requirements. Uh, so, so I w- wanted to hear your thoughts on: Do you think uh, the the current uh, S- measures for helping small, small and medium-sized enterprises uh, is good in, or sufficient uh, in the U.S.? 
um, kind of matches your expectation for the evergreening proposal or, or no? I think you still need the evergreening proposal. So the problem is there's enough money put on the table, but how to get the money from the table to the actual SME, which deserves it, the, the small and medium enterprises, which really deserves it. And that's a big challenge. So, for example, in Europe, you have credit registers, which means whenever you take out a loan of a particular size, it will be registered and you have all the numbers. So the official sector has all the numbers which loans are taken out and you say, oh, and they know which loans are due and which have to be paid off. So you have all the data available. In the United States, you don't have such a centralized credit registry. So you don't know whose loan is due, who needs some funding and whose loan is not due, is only due um, a year later. So that's what you're struggling in the United States. And there are some agencies, which private entities, which collect some of this information, but it's not uh, working so well. So we, we still have to, hopefully with some fintech companies, you can actually uh, do it to get a better sense for that. Um, but that's a big challenge, especially for the U.S., because, you know, a lot of this lending for small and medium enterprises is done also through trade credit and other arrangements. You, for example, you're a farmer, you buy a tractor from John Deere and John Deere is then lending you some money to, uh, to afford this tractor and you pay it back after the years. And, uh, you know, all of this, John Deere, of course, knows that there was lending to you, but no bank knows it. So at the end of the day, in the U.S., you have to work through the banks who have the information and through fintech companies to resolve this issue. And uh, that's more challenging compared to uh, European countries where you have a centralized credit registry uh, where the official sector knows exactly who is in difficulties and who has to receive some money. And you can inject the money more targeted. But I suppose uh, the U.S. sort of political system has been set up in in a way that is very, uh, quote unquote, decentralized, or it's not really meant to have this kind of centralized registry. Uh, So do you think reforms will be needed down the road? Uh, Because a lot of people are, are saying that as the U.S. government, you know, injects this kind of huge stimulus bill uh, into the country, it is kind of the chance uh, for the U.S. to engage in a lot of kind of reforms uh, that might uh, transform the U.S. into more or less of a welfare state in the future uh, or, or something like that to, to, towards a more like a EU model and probably the same yeah. thing for the EU to, to do so. So I would love to hear your thoughts on, on that front, sort of how, how so, you look going forward. Yeah. Yes. So I think in general, you know, what you see, this shock will transform the economy. It will lead to much more digitalization. So it can't be on the private side. It can also be on the official side. So what we are doing now, we talk over Zoom or some other, we teach over Zoom, and it might affect, you know, the educational sector to a large extent. There will be much more online teaching perhaps going on. There will be other arrangements. So it is a shock which also, you know, shakes the system, but also leads to new innovations this way. And the same thing will be true in the financial sector. Now, the, probably there will be a recognition that there's a need to have some centralized data to, uh, you know, if you want to disperse uh, funds, that you know where to disperse it to. So this way, um, it is the case that, 
you know, it could be on the private side or could be on the official side, on, on the public side. So it's not clear. So in the US, probably it would be more on the private side. There will be some private entity creating all this data. And there are some entities out there, but there's no interplay yet between the public sector and the private sector to really share this information. And that probably the crisis will help. So just to give you some anecdote from the last crisis, the, the Fed didn't have good data on mortgage situations. But of course, because of the crisis, there was a huge effort within the Federal Reserve System to get better mortgage data and get, understand what's going on. And a similar thing will now happen, you know, for small and medium enterprises, that uh, situation. There's probably after the crisis, we will have a much richer data environment and a data uh, collection system, which then helps it for future crises. And I think, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, sort of some of the creative methods that would be sort of needed for both the U.S. and the EU to take on in order to help us get through the crisis. Uh, and I think another interesting observation is that, you know, after 2008, uh, they're kind of, um, because of the low interest rate, there came this emergence of quote-unquote uh, unconventional monetary policies, whether it's you know quantitative easing, you know injecting liquidity into the the system, or uh, something like forward guidance policies. Uh, so, do you foresee new monetary policy frameworks uh, that need to come out of this crisis? In the sense that you know after this this crisis, our um, policy tools will be further constrained in some way, and then we will need to come up with new frameworks to, to uh, sort of work on in the future. So essentially, the, the Federal Reserve System was reviewing its monetary policy framework before we went into the crisis. So they were thinking, you know, to what extent do we have to review it? We have now a much lower interest rate environment. The distance to the zero lower bound is much, much lower. So they were thinking anyways you know, to reevaluate all the crisis measures that did and come with a more co coherent framework out of this. Because in times of crisis, you just try everything uh, and you reinvent things on the fly. And then later on, you want to then think, lean back and then make a more systematic evaluation, what worked, what didn't work, how should we make everything co coherent and consistent with each other. And they were trying to do that. But now, of course, this crisis is throwing up totally new questions. And as I mentioned earlier, this is a very different crisis in what we have compared to 2008, 2009. So that requires new tools, more focus on the corporate sector, not only on the household sector and the mortgage sector. And that makes the whole the thing more challenging, but it will surely lead to a rethinking. And actually, there are now many economic models popping up, which combine epidemiological models with economic models. So there's intersection here. They say, I want to understand the shock. If you want to shut down an economy, how long will it take? What's the uncertainty about this? What are the economic implications? And how does the economic implications feed back in, in the health aspect? And as I mentioned before, there's a the health crisis. So for example, you can shut down the economy. By shutting down the economy, uh, you save some lives because uh, because, you know, we, the contagion is actually slowed down, the health contagion is slowed down. But if at the same time um, you create other dangers, because now 
things are not working so well. And the worst case, if you look in India and other countries, people are starving. So people will die of starvation. You also kill some people the other way around. So shutting down the economy has some costs also on the health side. And that's, you have to balance these. And for this, you need some evaluation, you know, to what degree should we shut down the economy? How hard should we shut it down? And when should we open it up again? To what extent we can actually guide this by having better testings or not only test for people being sick, but also test people for being immune against this once they had the sickness and giving them pauses to say, once you had the sickness, you have on the iPhone or on your smartphone, some you know, special app which allows you to move around and you can prove that you had this uh, sickness before. So there will be new innovations coming up and that we have to go. That's the only, I think people are very creative and innovative. And that's the advantage of the United States that there's this creativity here to come up with new solution and resolve the problems. And that's why, you know, I hope at least we can get out of it, even though it will be hard to get out of it uh, fairly smoothly and not too long a distance. We don't have to wait until the vaccinations come after 18 months. I'm I'm really glad that you brought up this kind of new intersection between economics and epidemiology. Uh, and uh, I think there's a, a huge debate right now about, you know, quote unquote, saving the economy versus uh, following the social distancing measures uh, and, and shutting down the economy to save more lives. Uh, as, do you think there is actually a, kind of a debate right now going on in the in the U, U.S.? Do you think it's a valid debate? Uh, because y- even in Princeton, the Princeton uh, public economics professor uh, Elizabeth uh, Bogan is one of the people who really believe that you know we really rushed into responding to COVID nineteen without much data nor understanding sort of the cost to society when shutting down the economy. So just as you rightly mentioned, you know people might die because they can't make a paycheck or pay their rent or pay their health care uh, because they lost their job. And, and that could be, you know, the not number could be way bigger than people who actually got sick from from the disease. So I would love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on uh, where, where you stand on whether we should shut down the economy or whether we should um, continue just with mitigation strategies. I think for the United States, uh, the problem with the United States is that the number of IC units per capita is fairly low. So if you look at other countries, like in Germany, you have uh, the double the number of intensive care units. And you have to flatten the curve. Otherwise, people die at a very large numbers. And I think the US was very slow in reacting uh, to the news. And I think there was probably no choice to go for social distancing in, in the initial phase. I think that this difference, I think, is how quickly can we open up the economy again and can we open it up in a smart way? And that, but that's where the testing comes in, as I mentioned before, the testing not only whether you're sick or not, but also whether you're immune because you had it before. And I think there has to be the creativity and how we measure this and how we implement this in smart ways to give the people the right incentives to come back and not too early. But we have to react in a smart way. And I am not of the view that, you know, m- most of the people who will die from this disease will be elderly people. Hence, we shouldn't worry so much because they have anyway only a few years left. I think it has to be the case as a joint effort. And I think it's also a nation building effort to some extent. So that we come together, we do this together, even though it's primarily for the elderly people 
to help each other out. So we cut down the economy, flatten the curve, make sure that everybody gets some intensive care who needs it, and we make special efforts. But then we use all of our creativity to flatten the curve, and once we have flattened it, to come out in a smart way such that it doesn't drag on for too long. And as I said, there might be positive side effects for the economy too for doing this. There are, of course, a huge number of negative side effects, but there will be some technological revolutions which will help us um, to overcome this situation. I think you just touched on this very interesting concept of uh, social solidarity, uh, because I mean we just kind of mentioned it a couple minutes ago when you talked about how the EU has stronger social safety nets compared to the US, and I think that's a big debate uh, even before this crisis in the healthcare system. Uh, I mean, you are from Germany. Germany has a, a you know multi-payer healthcare system that kind of guarantees everybody to be in a sickness fund, and you, you everybody's kind of insured. That goes back all the way to Bismarck's time. You know, the, the, it's all built upon social solidarity. But in the U.S., you know, people can't even agree on whether healthcare should be a human right or or uh, or a, a privilege. So that means a lot of people, including you know the Vox editor Ezra Klein, who kind of criticized on how you've never given uh, poor people social safety nets in the U.S. and now you're demanding social solidarity from them for them to sacrifice to you know help us get through the crises. So. The, the poor Americans will say, what, what, what do you mean? Because they're not really used to this kind of model. So uh, because you're from Germany, I would love to uh, hear your thoughts on this kind of debate on social solidarity, on how we can you know, build up this stronger social fabric going forward. So the way I see it, so in, if you look at, about what the solidarity is between the young and the old, uh, so the people who are really hit by this crisis are the elderly people and the young are hit less. So what does solidarity mean? It means, for example, you don't have a big uh, party, the young people in the spring break or something like that, which then just multiplies the virus and, uh, you know, infects even more older, elder people. So I think the, the biggest dimension in solidarity is, is young versus old. And then there's a, a component, uh, rich versus poor, and, and this, uh, the, the, the virus is not discriminating between the two. Uh, it probably will hit the poor a little bit more because they don't have the same nutrition and all the other aspects. And for example, if we go to India, uh, it is actually, they would say, that came out in the, in the, in the third webinar with, with, with Ramanan. Uh, it came out very nicely that it was essentially an elitist disease because people who use airports and fly from place to place, they are putting actually disease into the country and the people in the countryside, they're, they're far remote for it. And so it's, it's hitting more uh, the, the well-educated and the, and the rich people. And that's in this dimension. But I think the primary solidarity, I think, is between um, the young and the old one has to consider in this dimension. Uh, are, are you optimistic about how the U.S. could better build up this social fabric or social solidarity? Because I, I think in a place like Germany that takes, you know, decades, if not, you know, centuries of culture and, and really social bonding. Uh, but now in the U.S., we don't even sort of have a agreement on the healthcare system. And now we can or kind of asking this whole concept of social solidarity. Wouldn't it be too much of a ask for the for the people? I think... 
you know, it typically takes a crisis for radical change, and it might be an attitude change towards uh, common healthcare in the United States as well. I think, uh, in my view, everybody should have some right to have good health insurance, even if they are poor. Uh, that's, for me, a basic right, but there are different attitudes towards that. I think in the U.S., there's, you know, there's lots to admire about the healthcare system. A lot of innovations and new drugs are invented in the United States. But if you look at the percentage spent of GDP on health and the, and the life expectancy gain from that, it's a very inefficient system. So on the one hand, you have a lot of innovations. I admire that. On the other hand, there's a lot of inefficiencies. And if you were to use these inefficiencies, which, you know, there's over-treatment here, left, right, and center in the United States in certain areas, in certain diseases, and to fix that, uh, I'm not an expert in health economics, but there's a lot of uh, things which could be done. And this would then free up money to incorporate and cover everybody in with a decent amount of health care. And I think that's definitely needed, but that's, of course, a political decision. And, and I hope that um, it is an eye-opener for, for many people that they are pushing in this direction. And at the end, they will see if we really provide healthcare for the poor people, then they are less likely to infect others as well. So if you have poor people who don't get healthcare and they're still forced to go to work, then they'll just spread the virus to others. Let's go to a system where they have healthcare and they can stay at home and then they can afford to stay at home when they're sick. And then they don't spread the virus and that makes the whole society much more stable and less susceptible to viruses and, and these viruses may come again over and over again and just purely from purely egoistic perspective then uh, other people might say oh actually that's not a bad idea because it also if i provide healthcare to poor people and give them the opportunity to stay at home when they're sick that actually protects me as well so i should be willing to give up some of my resources to the poor people you brought up this really interesting point, uh, the, the case in, in, in India and, and also your third webinar uh, with um, the director of the Center for Disease Dynamics, uh, Economics and, and Policy. His name is Ramanan Lakshmina Rayan. And, and you, you, he also brought up this very important point, which is that, you know, you have a thousand of deaths in a short period of time can cause very severe damage. Uh, on on people's psychology and you know th which can lead to this kind of snowball effect of even even worse and worse effects going down the road. Uh, and also, you mentioned how the the over overburden of the U.S. healthcare system. You know, you have to look at the ICU units and, and per, per capita. So it seems that w when we make decisions and policies, you cannot just look at the broader economic projections, but you have to look into the nitty gritty of certain specific metrics. And because of those metrics indicate that the U.S. should really shut down the economy, you think that's kind of the reason why we should really do it at this point? Yeah, so shutting down the economy is, is hard for many people in the United States, but it's much harder for people in, in India. And India has decided to shut down its, its economy. And for the migrant workers who essentially they will starve, so they are now walking hundreds of kilometers to get home in their countryside, and by doing so, they're bringing the disease also into the countryside. And there are a lot of complications, so you have to all these details matter. So, if you do some policy measures, 
you know, as an academic, you might not focus on all the details, but as a policymaker, you have to take all of these responses of how of individuals into account, because the individual says, okay, I have, I'm sitting here in a big city, everything is shut down, I cannot go to work and do my work every day, such that I can buy some food at the end of the day, so I better walk home uh, to where I'm coming from, from the countryside, and then you bring the disease to the countryside as well, and but the individual poor person has no choice because otherwise he would starve. And uh, there are all of these side effects from from the shutdown, and they are much more severe in countries like India compared to the United States. And as I said earlier, India doesn't have the resources. It cannot just say we issue two trillions of dollars of support programs because they don't have the capacity to go to the bond market to issue this amount of money and nobody will lend it to them at a, at a low interest rate. So that makes it more challenging. I think there is, in a sense, even though the US has a lot of hardship as well, it is uh, much less so much less dramatic than it is in India. The only hope is in India that you, the population is much younger and younger people are less uh, prone to catch this disease that's that's an advantage India has compared to the United States, but that's the only one. I think the greater question here is that how can policymakers and economists uh, come up with good policies when you actually don't have that much data or understanding of the issue? Uh, because coronavirus is very much something that we don't have enough data on. Some people are saying that the infectious rate is very, very high. But because a lot of people are asymptomatic, the, the death rate is actually very, very low uh, and, and things like that. There, there's so many different data. So how, how do you make your judgments in moments like this? In, typically, policymaking is uh, you have to do it a lot of decisions under uncertainty. So you don't have a lot of information typically. And, um, and here it's the same. What's new here is that you know, you have very little data and then you rely on models to project out what will happen because... You have to look ahead what will happen two or three weeks from now and make the decision now. You do the lockdown now in order to prevent some uh, healthcare crisis in two or three weeks. And for this, you rely very much on scientific models. And these are highly complicated scientific models. And what's interesting is that, you know, before that, we have a lot of populism and decision making, nobody believing in experts and all this. And suddenly you see the experts come in the forefront and really guiding major decisions in the economy. I think it's actually a surprising U-turn in this regard, where, you know, initially a few years ago, a few months ago, we thought we don't need the experts anymore. Now everybody's calling for experts, be it on you know, health, developing very fast new vaccination, or projecting what the outcome will be. And we don't know what it will be yet, and yet have to make already the decisions now, because incubation time, is sufficiently long. And in economics, it's it's also different because here you have a very fast exponential movement. Typically, we like to take averages and things like that when you look at the data. Here, you have to have very few uh, data points in the initial phase, and then you project it out exponentially. And many economic models have to adjust to that. And it's, it's a different environment. But of course, as we academics, we like these new challenges. And... Uh, that also makes you know science more exciting and because it has an impact and it also improves the world and it also shows the world that it can have a positive impact and we hope it will not 
backfire, you know, that it goes back to populism and uh, non, a non-scientific approach to make the decisions. So when we talk about making projections based on very uh, a few data, data points, that sounds to me by construction as something that involves a lot of variations or, or risks involved, right? Because we, we don't actually know mm-hmm. what the what the projections will look like. So I would love to hear your thoughts, you know, as, as an academic, as as a, a theoretical and, and practitioner. How how do you, what is the specific steps that you took to, to model those things? Were, were there economics models that you relied on? Were there other macro or ep- epidemiology models that you relied on? So I think if if I look at the one very influential epidemiological model was the one from Imperial College. You know, in the United Kingdom, um, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of uh, the United Kingdom, wanted to go for this herd immunity, saying we don't do anything, we just, uh, everybody will get it, and we'll get through it, and then we toughen up, uh, upper lip, um, stiff lip, and then we will actually get through it, and then we're all immune. And then the Imperial College experts wrote a paper saying, what about the implications? How much will the healthcare system collapse? And then they changed the U-turn. You saw very clearly how science made a huge impact in policy making a total rethinking how the whole thing should be approached. So I personally, I've worked a lot on crisis, on financial crisis, and we know there's this famous Rudy Dornbusch saying, initially the crisis is much slower than you think, and then suddenly it comes very fast and it's hard to control. And, you know, the same applies for this problem as well. But I have not, personally speaking, incorporated a formal model, which you can, can bring to the data and estimate and test um, uh, some epidemiological elements. So what I did more, I focused, okay, we have a problem here. We have a financial problem. I'm not a health expert. Let me focus on these aspects which I know best. I focus on the financial crisis and the economic crisis. What proposals can I bring forward to alleviate the problems coming as a knock-on effect of the health crisis? So we have the initial health crisis, then we bring the whole economy in the lockdown, and that causes a lot of knock-on effects. Let's mitigate and reduce the knock-on effects. That was my focus. And for these, I have made particular proposals, one which is more focused on Europe. We talked about the liquidity lifeline. The other one, which is more focused with the United States, that was this evergreening proposal we mentioned earlier. I mean, since you're from Germany, I also wanted to quickly ask you something about Germany. Uh, you know, the very famous IFO Institute for Economic Research uh, in Munich, uh, where I've also did a did a summer internship at. You know, they made some very pessimistic projections for the German economy, indicating that there could be some very steep drops in the um, stepping into recession or 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 having very steep drops in the GDP. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on. Um, how bad it, it actually is right now for a country like Germany or, or Europe, where I feel like a, a country like Germany, when people first think of it, they, they would probably think of something as very stable and very strong economy, but it, it still wouldn't be able to handle this crisis at, at this magnitude. So essentially, nobody really knows. So, And that's why most projections, they're done in scenarios. So people make a an adverse scenario, a less adverse scenario, and an okay scenario. So they don't specify one particular path. Um, and that same thing is true for the EFO Institute in Germany. I think it's, it is the case 
that it's very hard to make these projections. But it's also the case for Germany in particular that Germany depends a lot on exports. It's a very open economy. It imports a lot, but it exports even more. If things go wrong in China, it is felt in Germany much more than it's felt in the United States. And um, that makes the German economy very vulnerable to you know, some disruptions anywhere in the world. And that, that's why probably Germany will be hit harder from external factors than other economies are. But on the other hand, it is managing the crisis internally fairly well. So it has put up a program fairly swiftly and efficiently. It disperses the money very efficiently so far. And also in terms of testing, it is you know one of the countries which tests the most. So all the coronavirus testing is going very well. It's really covering the whole country. There are a lot of test sites. Uh, and they also have plans how to open up the economy with you know significant um, exposed testing or immunity testing in order to have you know pass distributed to people who have immunity that they can work again. So there's an efficient way of organizing things. That's the strength of the German economy. The weakness is, is the exposure to the global economy at, at large, much more so than the United States. One piece of news that really shocked me uh, these past couple of days was that, you know, the finance minister of uh, the state Hesse, which is where Frankfurt is at, mm-hmm. I mean, the, sta- the finance minister of the state, Thomas Schäfer, uh, committed suicide a few days ago. Just apparently he has been very concerned that he wouldn't be able to fill the uh, financial aid expectations for the population because of the coronavirus impact. And that was very shocking to me that, you, you know, a policymaker would uh, commit, commit suicide because he really saw no way out. And, and I, I don't know if you've talked to uh, your friends back in Germany or any policymakers back then. Are the sentiments very down right now in terms of, you know, how people feel this thing might turn out? Are, are people really feeling that, uh, pessimistic about the outlook? I think it's, so I cannot judge this individual case, the finance minister of Hesse who committed suicide, um, because it might have been just the last straw which, which broke the camel's back. Um, there might probably there have been some other elements in this decision-making process. So I can't really comment on that. In general, there is a sense that it's a serious thing. It's the most serious aspect of the Second World War. And, uh, but there's also a lot of discipline so that we together we will manage that and we get through that. So it is also an element where we go, let's get together and uh, and get through this uh, hardship. Um, I think the despair is not yet there, in particular because the social safety net is making it much easier compared to other nations uh, to get through it. But I can imagine if this lasts way longer, then it gets much more frustrating. One big difference I see between the United States and uh, Germany is, of course, that in the United States, people are reacting and using technology much more freely to adjust to the new circumstances. So if I look at my kids here in the United States, they are, have Zoom in education the whole day. So it's totally switched over and it works pretty well. And you essentially keep on going uh, electronically to do education while in Germany that's not done at the same extent. So that's, I mean, there's more flexibility, 
when I talk to my Chinese friend, it's the same in China or in the US, there's more adoption to new technology much faster. That's an advantage the US has. And um, that's less the case in, in Germany in particular. I guess going back to this idea of technology, uh, you also mentioned, you know, just a little bit back before in the interview that uh, you think new technologies uh, and innovations will emerge out of this crisis that will help us uh, rethink um, how private sector could um, help us carry through some of those moments. Uh, do you really have faith in, in the private sector and, uh, you know, whether it's fintech or uh, tech innovations to help us carry through those crises, or do you sort of put more of your faith on on the government? Um, I, I guess this is also a question that kind of ties back to some of your research on digital currency. Um, is, I, I guess do you do you see any fintech innovations that could really take us out of this? So typically, uh, for small and intermediate sized shocks, the private sector is good in handling that. But for very large shocks like this, you need some government support and because the government can essentially levy taxes in the future and then bring resources to the current period, which has uh, extreme hardship. And so, but in general, it has to be the interplay between the private sector and the public sector. So the, the innovation will come from the private sector and then the public sector picks up on it and interplays. So I think a healthy interplay between both the public and the private sector is the key, on the one hand, to keep the flexibility, the innovation the private sector brings. On the other hand, in the well-organized way of approaching things and internalizing externalities, if I may use some economic jargon here, uh, that's where you need the government to come in. Because essentially, if I don't do uh, social distancing, then actually I hurt somebody else and I might not totally internalize that, that I might hurt somebody else or some elderly people. So that's where the government has to intervene occasionally. But I would not rely purely on the ingenuity of the, the government sector. I think there's this interplay, which is the key. Uh, and I also wanted to ask you a little bit more about the, the populist sentiment that you kind of just touched on, uh, because you, you said it, you're very happy to see that people are suddenly uh, turning back away from the populace uh, and the non-experts and the pundits and back to experts. And do, But do you think coronavirus would actually help contribute to any sort of rising waves of nationalism and isolationism? because it, it seems that there are very distinctly different approaches between the authoritarian regimes and the democratic regimes. And one could say, oh, this one is a little bit more effective, that one is a little bit more expect, uh, effective, uh, or vice versa. And then, and then people in each of those regimes would probably believe or disbelieve their own regime a little bit more than before, so that you could say that the divisions um, would be further strengthened um, because of this coronavirus uh, crisis? Uh, that's indeed the danger that uh, I wouldn't say it's not necessarily only popularism. It's also that you have a strong government intervening. And then the question is, if the government gets a taste of intervening all the time, then it, will it recede it back in normal times? Or it might make sense for the government to intervene more strongly and limit the individual freedoms of people in order to overcome the current uh, corona crisis. But once the crisis is over, they should actually let go again and give people's freedoms back. 
And there might be a shift in attitude saying, okay, oh, if you have a more authoritarian government, it was more effective in handling the coronavirus uh, outbreak. But that's not clear because, I mean, one big drawback of this authoritarian environment is that you don't have the information flow. And you saw this in China. If there were a less authoritarian problem or government in China, then the information flow might have been much more early and much more open and transparent. And this would have prevented the coronavirus in the first place. So it's not clear at all that, you know, in, when once the coronavirus is out of the bottle, then it might be better to have more government involvement and all that. But it also kills off health information flow, which actually allows them to intervene much earlier and don't even let, even let the crisis emerge in the first place. I think that's a fair assessment because um, I, I just worry that sometimes people could have one-sided views on those issues and overly criticize one side compared to the other uh, and sort of have wrong takeaways from that. But, but, but yeah, what you said, uh, it, it, I think is a great message to kind of tie, tie our interview back on. Uh, I know we're kind of short on time, so I just want to quickly get your, your thought on this. Uh, one last couple of quick questions. One is that, do you have any contrarian views uh, that you, you have for this crisis that you think many others might disagree with i mean not, not that we have to have a contrarian view but i would really uh I, I, and and i think we actually brought up a lot of very interesting perspectives today but i do want to just kind of ask you this uh, one quick question i don't think there is a mainstream view in a sense that i can be opposed to there are so many views out there and uh it's not that 90 percent push in one direction and i can say oh i'm against this 90 percent because it's there's so many individual actions taken and, you know, the 40% on one side and 60% the other side. So even if you want to be contrarian, it would be in the 40% camp. So it's very hard to find a particular example here. What I would stress in terms of economic policy, don't, don't ignore, ignore the small and medium enterprises. And I think the administration went this way. It's a question of implementing and the professionalism in this. That's the open question. Will we have much you know, data and professional attitude to really disperse the money efficiently or will it go just in channels which it will disappear. And uh, coming back to the populism earlier, I think you see it in many countries that, you know, the governments gain in popularity. For example, in Germany, the right-wing AFD really lost big time now on popularity because, you know, actually it's much better to be governed by a serious technocratic government rather than a government uh, which is constantly driven by some popular statements and other things. It's very interesting because I read this New York Times art article a couple of days ago that said Trump's uh, approval rating is as high as it ever been because uh, a lot of people say they, they finally saw the serious side of him comforting the public you know, in, on TV and, and giving uh, serious statements and they feel like they're really seeing the presidential side. So his approval rating really shot up. So, so that kind of you know, goes back to your point that in moments like this, people really need uh, just the more technocratic side of things rather than the more populist side of things. Uh, that, that totally makes sense. Uh, since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, I just really want to ask you at the very end, 
uh, what's the punchline here? You know, we, we, we had a very long-winded conversation starting from uh, your webinars uh, with Nelly Liang and, and Torsten Stock talking about the economic outlook and uh, some of the monetary policy tools that, that could uh, emerge out of this. And then we talked about the more general debates on whether it, it, we should shut down the economy or intervene or not. Uh, and then we kind of ended on some general discussions on Germany and EU and populism. Uh, is, what would be your punchline here for, for this episode? I think the punchline for many of things we said, let me just say we had a health crisis, an economic crisis, a financial crisis. They all interact and we have to control and manage them all. And we should go for an expertise-driven uh, scientific approach to help the people rather than a gut-feeling approach. I think that's the punchline. And we should not go in an authoritarian trap. We might need more government intervention now, but we should not be trapped in some authoritarian trap in the long run. Thank you so much, Professor Brunemeyer, for, for ending on such a positive note. And I uh, it hears from me that I guess you are more optimistic than pessimistic about uh, the short-term and long-term outlook. I'm overall an optimistic person, and I believe also in the power of technology to help us in these circumstances as well, and the ingenuity of people. Perfect. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining joining me remotely from Princeton today. I, I really hope uh, that we could help pro uh, promote some of those messages and also some of your ideas to more people to have people help people get a more technical understanding on some of those issues when it comes to economic debates. Uh, thank you so much for for connecting with me. Thank you, Tiger. It was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, wonderful. Uh, and and how can people fi find out more about your work, uh, your Twitter, and your website? I suppose. Yes, and I mean, the, the webinar series is on the BCF website. I can probably should put the link on my own website as well. Which is uh, bcf.princeton.edu. Uh, and That's and right. I think people can follow your Twitter at uh, Marcus Economist. Um, yes. and, and I think those are very credible ways to for people to get information. Uh, well, well, thank you again, Professor Brunemeyer. And, and I guess this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Twitter, uh, rate and review us, uh, visit us on policypunchline.com for uh, more of our coverage on coronavirus uh, and, and beyond. Uh, thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.